Hi, this is John H. from the Nerdbound Podcast, saying I got my degree from Miskatonic University. Go Pods! It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, episode 75. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Dan. And I'm Keeper John. In this episode, we camp in the Mojave to meet some friends. And for the main topic, we're going to make an opposed role to tackle one of the new mechanics in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, combat. First, ready, fight! <laughs> We're going to start things off in the campus crier. Miskatonic University campus crier. Campus crier's Miskatonic U student paper. We're just going to go through feedback and podcast news. And this episode is recorded on March 22nd, 2015. First off, as you can probably tell, it's just John and I for this episode. Ooh. So maybe it'll be shorter. Maybe it won't. <laughs> we'll see. My uh, my allergies are getting the best of me, it seems like. Ugh. Ugh. You might have to knock me out later. Okay. Well, we actually, we've got the rules for the for chokeholds, so... Good. We can do that. Excellent. Chokeholds yeah. and sucker punches. Yeah. But starting things off, Cassium has released another one of the stretch goals that was part of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition for that uh, Kickstarter campaign. Sense Impacts. The Basically, it's a, a gaming soundtrack being, that was uh, composed and produced by Chad Pfeiffer. Has yeah. now been released to the public. Yeah, that sounds very cool. I, I, you know, I was a backer of the of the seventh edition Kickstarter. I don't think I was at a level though to receive this because I've received the news about this, but I didn't get a uh, uh, a direct email link. So, oh, that's weird. You and I were at the same level, and I got one. Oh, well, okay. I have to double check my emails. Yeah. But for the general public, this is fifteen ninety five, and for uh, backers of the campaign at the right levels, you got a, an email with a coupon code that made it free. All right. So we got thirteen tracks in there, and it's basically for running in the background while you're playing Call of Cthulhu. Nice. So that's another one, another one of the uh, campaign goals out of the way. I like how they're. Starting to knock these out. We're starting yep. to get the uh, the emails. Yep. Then we've got the Kickstarter campaign for the Journal of Lovecraftian Science. It has seven days to go, and it's almost to a stretch goal that's going to provide another 10-page chapbook 
on the biology of Migo. Oh, that's awesome. So it'll, if that gets hit, which it looks very likely, then we'll get biology of the Elder Things, Shugoths, and Migo. Very, very cool. Yeah. So there's a week left on that. You know, go take a look and see if it's something that interests you. It's not a, an expensive campaign at all, so. Uh-uh, it really isn't. That's a nice thing. Yeah. They've almost uh, doubled their their uh, goal, their goal of 2,500. They've, you know, easily achieved that. They're at uh, 4,200 now, so they're almost up to the 5,000 mark. So Yep. I think they'll, I think they'll easily hit that. And the campaign for the Masks of Nyarlathotep Companion is complete. And they ended up with 35,937 pounds, which is pretty massive. Phew. Yeah, that's, there's all, quite a few folks that have gotten the, uh, the book. I mean, at the level where you're getting the, the standard print softback edition uh-huh. was 300 backers. And then 200 backers for the uh, hardback version. So, yeah, that's quite a few people. Unbelievable. This is awesome. Yeah. They've got a lot of of, uh, stretch goals knocked out. That, of course, is going to extend out the time for the uh, production of it. But, you know, that's going to be okay because there's a lot of really nice articles that are going to be added into this. And then the last stretch goal they got was conversions of all stats of the Companion to 7th edition. Oh, wow. So that's going to be a separate PDF that'll be released later after they get the main part of the uh, campaign taken care of. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. That's going to keep some folks busy for a while, I think. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to the whole team of people that got that you know, pushed through and uh, got the... The companion actually moved forward. That's fantastic. Then, next up, this isn't particularly Cthulhu-related, but it is something that Sandy Peterson's doing. And since he's the father of the Call of Cthulhu RPG, it's worth mentioning. Absolutely. Yeah. Sandy is now designing another board game, and this one is based on a computer game called Orcs Must Die. (laughs) So, I guess the general premise of this is that the players take on the roles of defenders, keeping waves of enemies away from their portals. And then there's like a head-to-head mechanic for the players to go against each other. So, you've basically got, uh, you know... uh, two flanks that you've got to worry about of that the game itself is providing, you know, an opponent, and then you have the opportunity that, uh, if you want, you can also go head-to-head against the uh, other players. Yep, which means that this game, I saw, it plays one to four players, so this is a game that uh, can be done solo. Mm-hmm, which I, is I, very cool. Yeah, and that, that's an aspect I actually look for in board games. I mean, it's not, it's not the... Uh, you know, it's not a make or break for me, you know, but but I it's a bonus for sure. If I can buy a game and it has the ability to, to have solo play, that's that's great, you know, because I don't yeah. I don't have an opportunity all the time to be able to get together with friends and have a, a table board game, you know, table game night type of thing. But uh, 
put the kids to bed, be able to break out a game and, and, and play for a couple of hours. That's yeah. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So it'd be cool to, uh, to be able to uh, play this as a, uh, as a one player game. Yeah. It makes it a much more worthwhile investment. And that it's going to have at least 40 miniatures released with it. And this is, uh, it just looks like fun. And Sandy's a really, really good game designer, so I bet the gameplay is going to be great. For a long time now, we've lamented our lack of uh, understanding and knowledge of the Trail of Cthulhu system, and one of our forum members was uh, very generous and actually had a spare copy of the book laying around and sent it to me. So I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, that is super cool. So I've been pouring over that and just trying to get a better understanding of how the mechanics work and the basics of, you know, how the game functions. And there's one bit that I found in the back of it that I uh, wasn't, it really expecting, even though I probably should have, that it actually has like a couple pages that explains how to use the Trail of Cthulhu style game in the Call of Cthulhu mechanics. Oh, okay. And it's like, oh, well, that's certainly helps make it translatable to me, so I can just see how this adapts and Oh, okay, and then this carries over to that, and so forth, so forth. But uh, it's it's a really good book. It has a lot of great resources in there, even for beyond just, you know, hey, it's a new game and this is how it works. This is highly useful to people who don't even plan on making use of the mechanics. It's got, like, a long list of... Uh, different cults that you could potentially use and yeah. how they would respond to things and yeah. how to create your own. It's, it's got some really cool resources in there. It does. It's a, it's an amazing book. I, you know, I have the trail of Cthulhu book. I've read it a couple of times, you know, to try and uh, understand the, the mechanics, uh, but it is beautifully produced and it has a lot of great info that you can that you can steal and, and use in other games. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I love the way it's written. Yeah, me too. It's it's really, really nice. So, you know, if you're curious, go and take a look over at the Pelgrane website. Or if you're just thinking of PDF, uh, go on over to the drive through RPG. I've had the PDF for a while now. I just read things better in print. And getting the actual print copy in my hands, the uh, production value of this is really top notch. Yeah, it's 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 a superior book, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say thank you also to our community. Whenever on uh, last episode, I put out a request for some assistance in, like, whenever an episode drops, if somebody could go out and, like, go over to the Yug uh, Sothoth forums and just put an update there saying, hey, a new episode has dropped. Because I think the last one I did was in the 20s. And I just haven't kept up with it. And so we had somebody write in and volunteer to take care of those duties. And so Gareth on the forums, thank you very, very much for doing this. And uh, really appreciate it. It does. It helps. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Gareth. 
Yep. And we've also even had a response for a community segment that is currently being worked on. So, not sure when it'll be ready to go, but when it is, we'll drop it into the episodes. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more voices from you guys out there. Yep. That'll be fun. Yeah. And, John, you and I got yeah. postcards. Yeah, <laughs> like we speculated before, uh, after we got the uh, the Edinburgh, uh, Scotland uh, postcards, we, we each received a postcard from Italy. Yep, and they're very cool, and yours is particularly creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is just... This is just so cool. I, 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 I don't know who did this, but whoever you are, you are awesome. <laughs> yeah. The level of work that went into this is um, just really surprising because uh, getting all this to work together and all is uh, just amazing. Yes, it is utterly amazing. And uh, I actually suspect that the not only does the 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 story that's in the text of the uh, of the uh postcards which uh, I don't think we'll read it out here on the show but we'll yeah. we'll, we'll transcribe uh, cuz some of the uh the writing it looks uh, it looks like it definitely looks like there was a madman scrabbling you know scribbling on the uh, postcards to to convey a message uh, so we'll transcribe those and uh, and put them on the uh, the show notes. Uh, and and please, everyone, go to the website and check out the show notes for this episode because I think we're going to have the photos uh, of these postcards, mm-hmm. right? So yep. you'll not only get to see the the front of the four postcards, but also uh, how the yellow sign image was created on you know one quarter of it in the corners of, of all four of the postcards. Yep. And I kind of suspect that the imagery on the postcards also tells us a story. Uh, so, and I think Dan, I think you got your cards before I got mine. So I think there's actually a, a chronological story to way to the way that these came out. So, uh, if we think about it, the image on your first Edinburgh card was an image of Edinburgh. And then the image on my Edinburgh card was of a train, let's say, supposedly leaving Edinburgh, going through the countryside. Mm-hmm. Then you got the uh, your Italian card, and it was like a, an old schematic blueprint of, a, of an ancient, maybe a cathedral or some kind of building in Italy. And, and the, the, the schematics look old and torn and very weathered as if it's a, some sort of lost blueprint or something. Maybe it's showing a yeah. secret level or something like that. Uh, certainly something that an investigator would need to have on hand if they were uh, going to go and check out a, uh, uh, maybe some sort of uh, ancient clue or mystery that they're going to uh, pursue. And then, unfortunately, the image on my Italian uh, card 
is uh, it, it looks like an image from uh, Dante's Inferno, where there's this giant demon, bearded demon. I would almost say Murphyan bearded demon uh, <laughs> with a <laughs> with a, uh, a nude uh, person in the mouth. You know, so from the buttocks down, it's it's dangling out of their mouth. Out of the ears of the demon are two giant snakes, and each snake has a a nude person in their mouth, and and it just looks like there's a uh, uh, people and, and demons in the background and are surrounding, you know, torturing people and stuff. Very, very Dante Inferno type of, uh, of imagery. And uh, so I think the storyline is somebody from Edinburgh took a train down to Europe all the way to Italy, started exploring a, a building that he had this ancient map for and uh, met his demise as he crossed over to another world and the uh, the creatures got him. So, yeah, uh, that it's as good as theory as any. <laughs> I don't know where the this came from, but somebody's very imaginative and very talented. Ah, love and it. And extremely patient. <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I photoshopped all four cards together so you can see the the completed symbol in the middle and it, it looks just amazing. How how somebody got this all together like that it's especially over you know uh, you can put two of the cards together and draw them at the same time when you're in that place but then you have to mail the cards right so uh, it's it's just you know fascinating and yeah. getting all that to uh go together so yeah i mean it's it's unreal the the Edinburgh st- uh postcards have uh english uh, airmail stamping in, in a in a Edinburgh postage uh, uh, post office you know, uh, you know postmark postmark, yeah. and then the Italian ones have Italian po- uh, stamps with an Italian postmark. I mean, these were authentically mailed from those locations. Mm-hmm. Crazy, absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's just bizarre, but we love it. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever you are, thank you. And uh please step out of the shadows so we can talk to you and ask you exactly what you had in mind with this and 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 some of the logistics of how this was actually accomplished cuz this is really cool. Yeah. And I love how you're addressed as a Dr. D Kramer mm. and I'm Professor J Hook. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. This is awesome stuff. Yeah. And for our Crypticurium spotlight, thought I might point out something that this has been actually out of stock on the website for a little while now, and now seems to be back available for another limited edition run of uh, 50, is the Xenomorph Life Cycle Magnets. Oh. Is it all four? Yeah. Okay. I for some reason I saw on Facebook Jason had had posted an image of the uh, the adult alien warrior, you know, kind of curled up, mm-hmm. and uh, and it said on Facebook back in stock. Uh, I didn't realize it was the entire uh, yeah four, the whole four magnet set set is available as well as you can just get the single you know adult alien one as its own thing. Nice. So yeah, he's doing another run of those. I mean, the the, uh, the alien ones sold out pretty quickly. So I'm glad he's got more 
of those coming. Because, yeah, I have that particular set, the uh, the Xenomorph set, and uh, they're amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those look awesome. Yeah. in the beast jerry yay <laughs> and this is a creature that you don't see terribly often it's very environment specific yeah and so it's not terribly common to run across but when you do get into the right environment you know it'd be silly not to at least have some sort of reference to these guys well and you know i wrote a little book a while back called Timeless mm-hmm. Sands of India. Hmm. I wonder what might be a creature in that book. <laughs> Sand yeah, the, dwellers. The cover might be a bit of a <laughs> yeah, the, hint. The cover is a bit of a giveaway on that. Yeah. <laughs> Sand dwellers. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we've got a, uh, a species of creature that they're... They're pretty much just like having people. They're, uh, but they're, you know, bestial and clawed and don't like visitors very much. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that they're very similar to running a, a, a deep one. You know, it's just the opposite environment. Uh, although they don't, you know, as far as the uh, literature goes, and, and to my knowledge, I don't think anybody's done this in the game or tried to extrapolate it in such a way. I don't think there's a human hybrid transformation type of thing with uh, sand dwellers. Uh, I think they are just their own race, but but uh, much in the way that you would maybe conceptualize and think of deep ones, I think you could kind of do the same with the sand dwellers. Yeah. You know, because they are, you know, very humanoid, uh, environment specific, you know, another thing about the sand dwellers that that's, you know, in addition to not sharing the uh, the the human hybrid thing with deep ones, they also, to my knowledge, they don't have a particular uh, great old one that they that they follow and worship. It said, you know, the book says that they usually serve great old ones and and often dwell near them, but it it doesn't go so far as to say this great old one. Whereas with the deep ones, you know, you you're very much, you know, Dagon, Hydra, Cthulhu. Uh, so I don't quite see that similarity. So maybe maybe the two races aren't as similar as I think, but I, I kind of think of them a little bit as the same because of, you know, environment-specific, humanoid-ish, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was kind of interesting on the quote that they include in the rule book, which uh, I have opened the 7E version, so everybody's on the same page here. But the quote that they have for Sand Dweller is from uh, The Gable Window by Lovecraft and Derleth. Then out of one of the caves came a Sand Dweller, rough-skinned, large-eyed, large-eared, and with a horrible, distorted resemblance to the koala bear facially, though his body had an appearance of emaciation. He shambled toward me, manifestly eager. And I kind of wish that they had sort of rethought that a little bit, because any time that you're 
trying to describe a horrible monster, and the words koala bear wind up as part of the description. Yeah. And it really kind of, I think that explains a lot of why the artwork for Sand Dwellers has never seemed all that threatening for the most part. Yeah. They kind of look like zombie Ferengi. <laughs> I do, uh, maybe as a side note, in the show notes, will you provide a, a, a cover image of uh, Time of Sands of India so they can see that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I do like the way uh, the cover artist for, for uh, Time of Sands, uh, Eddie Schramm, the way he illustrated the uh, sand dwellers. But, yeah, I mean, because when the artist was inquiring about the way the creatures looked, I, I gave him all the descriptions to include this quote about the koala bear, the large eyes, the large ears and stuff. So, yeah, I wanted to make it stay true, but you're right. They, they, uh, it's hard to, hard to convey, uh, horror when you're, uh, alluding to like a koala bear. Yeah. Now koalas are pretty disgusting actually. (laughs) Are they? Yeah. uh, There, there's like, they're, they're nasty. Most of them have like a wide range of, uh, Sexual diseases and just yeah, they're they're a gross yeah, animal. That's pleasant. Yuck. Yeah, that's kind of a cool, creepy image for the sand dweller there. Yeah, I like the artwork that they put into the seventh edition for them. It's it has it fits the description, uh-huh. but it also doesn't look silly or cute. It's definitely got a a creepy factor. Their uh, their stats are they're. They're in the range of humans. They're very much, uh, you know, because they are very humanoid. They they have all their stats are in the same range as humans. So they're, you know, something that we, you know, going on later on in this uh, this episode. There, you could you could fight one and, and possibly survive or win. You know. Yeah. Uh, they do attack with the. Uh, they do have two attacks per round. They have uh, claws that they attack with, and if they are of a certain POW level or higher, uh, they know spells. Which is, you know, potentially troubling. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things, you know, spoilers for anybody who is planning to be going through Time of Sands of India, uh, you might want to skip ahead a little bit, but uh, yeah, the uh, the sand dwellers that I have in that uh, adventure, there are uh, a pair of, uh, of wizards among them, and they... They cast a ritualistic spell. Uh, I think it's called uh, "Bring Habood," or and it's the it's the sandstorm spell. So they march onto the uh, the PC's location, bringing a sandstorm with them to cover you know the their uh, their numbers and and make it easier to get it up close. Uh, these guys they're essentially human in a lot of their stats, power, intelligence. They're a little bit quicker on dexterity. They're actually larger on size for the average. Yeah. A little better on constitution. Strength is the same. So they're essentially, you know, they're they're a little tougher and uh, a little quicker. But they're, uh, on average, not too dissimilar from humans. So that actually makes them a really, really useful uh, antagonist to use for scenarios that uh, take place in the environment where these guys could be found. Though, uh, don't consider them that easy to defeat, though, because of their uh, unique body structure of being uh, sand-encrusted. They actually have a three-point armor. 
So that's, I mean, three points is pretty tough. So three point armor, Mm -hmm. that is going to make them uh, difficult to put down, but still, it's still possible. Yeah, these guys have a very thick, tough hide, and they've got, um, yeah, fighting attacks. Basically, they have the usual range of unarmed attacks open to any humanoid, in addition that they also have claws on their fingertips. So you can have them do the wrestling, grappling, any of the stuff that we're actually going to talk about later. And they're smart enough, I would even say that, you know, if somebody drops a weapon in a fight, have one of these guys pick it up. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't give it to, uh, have them pick up a firearm, but yeah, anything melee. Yeah, I could see one of these if they make an idea roll to, uh, figure out that, you know, they just watch people use it. Oh, why not? You can have a, uh, an opportunity for some, uh, interesting hijinks. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I could see one, uh, picking one up and then, you know, it, it starts stitching bullets into the ground, you know, before it starts getting a hang of it and the, you know, reco- recoil yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, that, that actually could be exactly. Kind of funny. You know, maybe shoots a couple of its friends. Yeah, that could be helpful. <laughs> yeah, you know, just have several idea rolls in a row, and and meanwhile the players are like, "Oh crap, we gotta tackle this one now and get the uh, gun away from it." But you know, that could just be sort of amusing and and also very threatening because once it does figure out how the thing works then uh, can go very, very badly. And I actually think that there's a lot more that could be done with the Sand Dwellers. Uh, it talks about that they live in caves in the deserts, and I'm wondering what their lair is like inside those caves. Uh, are they mundane in the fact that they're still on this plane of existence, or you know, do they have, uh, you know, I mean, they, they can know spells. Is there gate technology that they've set up and Maybe, you know, if you go deep enough in those caves, you can actually cross over to maybe their home world or, or you know, dimension mm-hmm. of origin or something uh, and uh, and see what that's like. So there there could be a lot more to explore with the uh, dwellers. Yeah. Well, plus there's the idea of that the ghoul caves actually tap into the dreamlands. Maybe these guys have some sort of access to that. Exactly. And another nice thing about these is that they're not something that you're going to have to, you know, fly to Egypt in order to put into a scenario. Anywhere with that kind of dry, rocky environment of a desert scape can, uh, can house these guys. So right here in North America, there are plenty of environments that would work just fine. It even says in the book, they're known to live in the American Southwest. So, yep, I would think big chunks of Mexico. Sure, sure. You know, the the American Mojave Desert, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. Death Valley, you know. uh, Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's lots of places that they could be. And I like the idea of colonies of these creatures that, uh, you know, they may be antagonistic simply because they're territorial. You know, they just might not like people invading on their territory. And, well, it's also, oh, it's also the convenient uh, aspect of, hey, there's food. Yeah. And I just had it. I just, you know, I love talking about the, the creatures and stuff because I'll get these ideas that just kind of pop in my head. Uh, you know, kind of seeing a, uh, have you seen those, uh, uh, movies like the Hills have eyes or, you know, the 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you know it's these depraved, mm-hmm. you know, inbred families, you know, living out in the in the in yeah. the you know the outer edges of society. I could almost see uh, a family that maybe came across uh, some you know mewling. Uh, newborn sand dwellers and you know, for whatever reason they were abandoned or whatever or maybe they these uh this you know weirdo family of weirdos you know were were exploring with the caves took the infants and raised them as their own family members so they've got these these uh you know sand dweller you know infants that they've raised to be you know just these uh twisted barbaric you know members of their own family and and uh have them like you know part of their family out there living in the outer edges of the desert it's you know you never no one ever really sees or talks to bubba uh but uh when bubba comes around oh god it's a dweller yeah oh i like that and that i mean they have the intelligence to be able to learn human behavior and learn allies yeah yeah and i would give it a, a certain level of speech capability i mean there's no reason why it can't so that would actually be pretty terrific to have something like that so there's a sand dweller with you know overalls and on and it just you know kind of stalking around and from a distance you have a hard time who's that you know and but it's only if you get up close you figure out what who bubba really is you know yeah Uh, something to think about yes i like that a lot then another direction to go in is just the mysterious, you know, uh, desert dwellers that they're the skills that are listed for these guys are stealth, listen, and spot hidden, all at respectable levels. So you could also have these uh, guys basically trailing along behind and beside a group of investigators just to kind of keep an eye on them. Yeah. So you can raise up the paranoia a bit with, you know, the occasional spot hidden or just the, you know, catching a glimpse out of the corner of your eye of movement and then there's nothing there. So, yeah, make, you know, be imaginative and make sure of you, you're you using these guys as something more than just cannon fodder. Yeah, there's, there, I think for a creative keeper, there's a lot that you could do with the Sand Dweller. And it wouldn't go amiss if you uh, established they travel in single fire to hide their numbers. <laughs> Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. And for the main topic, we're going to begin the diving into the 70 stuff and uh, start off with talking about the way that the basics of combat work in this. Yeah. Uh, so it's just the two of us. I'm not sure how far deep we're going to be able to get into this uh, today. We're going to stay kind of high level, and also that way it doesn't uh, get, you know, overwhelming in content and just, you know, info dump. Sure. Uh, So let's uh, start with the basics that uh, combat is an opposed skill role. Yeah, the almost all uh, combat roles are going to be opposed between the combatants. And even if it's multiple combatants, like in a fight, it's going to be based on dex order, which is what we're used to. So in the dex order of 
all of the participants as it goes down and each one is uh, called on for their turn, then they will determine to do an attack or some other action. And uh, if they do something that interacts with another character in the fight, then that character makes a role as a defensive posture. Okay. And the way it would work is that both would make the role uh, simultaneously is the way it's intended. So the the keeper and the player would both roll at the same time and then compare your uh, levels of success. So it's not even just directly comparing, you know, which one rolled lower. It's you've got uh, six levels of success that can come up where a fumble is uh, a roll of 100. And if the the skill that's being rolled for is less than 50, then it's 96 or over is a fumble. So that's where you can get creative and have all sorts of fun, terrible things yeah. happen. But it's not really mandatory. It's just something that for like if it's a firearm, then you want to see whether or not the weapon is jammed or just a dud round or what's going on there. Then below f- fumble would be just a failure. So they just did not reach the skill, but they didn't reach into the threshold either 96 and above or just 100 for a fumble. Then you've got the four levels of succeeding on the roll. Regular success, equal to or below the character skill or the characteristic being rolled. A hard success, which is below half of the character skill or characteristic. So if somebody's got a skill of 50 and something, okay, so they have a a fumble range of, let's see, it says less than 50. So if somebody has a 50 skill, then their fumble range is 100. Their failure range is 51 to 99. And then for a hard success, they would have to roll 25 or less. And an extreme success is below one-fifth. That's what we yeah. would uh, used to call the the impale. Yeah, equal to or below. Yeah. And then a critical success is a roll of one. So you're going to basically compare the results of the two rolls between the keeper and the player and, you know, go by, you know, who's who rolled better. Yeah, you compare not the numeric role, you compare the level of success. Regular success versus a extreme success, or regular versus regular. So they say in case of a tie, regular success versus regular success, the character with the higher skill level is is the uh, is the winner of that tie. Yeah, the one with the higher target yeah. number. So from there, then you can determine what exactly happened in the fight. You know, that could have been trying to shoot somebody, that could have been throwing a punch, but that's the basis of all the combat in the game for 7th edition, is doing that uh, opposed role and then comparing the success levels. So I'd like to step through, just as an example then, uh, just like they do in the book, I want to step through a fist fight. Uh, so okay. let's assume that you have an investigator uh, with a fighting skill with the brawling uh, specialty, uh, which the base, uh, everyone has a base of that of 25%. Uh, 
Uh, but we're going to say that that our uh, investigator is uh, is pretty experienced. So he's got sixty percent in brawling, and he's going to be fighting a, a cultist who has a fifty uh, percent brawling. We're not going to do a surprise right now. So these two combatants, they realize they are going to be fighting each other, and uh, mm-hmm. the the cultist is the aggressor. So the occultist, uh, you know, races up and uh, tries to, to to punch the uh, investigator. So first, you know, you make your declarations. Uh, so the keeper would say, okay, the cultist is going to uh, punch, so uh, I'm going to be using uh, uh, brawling. The investigator gets to choose, do they want to use brawling to kind of fight back, or do they want to dodge? And let's assume, mm-hmm. let's assume that the... Uh, the investigator, he's experienced in a fight. Let's say he wants to fight back. So now we're going to do an opposed brawling roll between each of them. They, they both roll for brawling. Uh, and let's say the, the cultist, he rolls a 45. So that's a standard regular success. Uh, but our investigator, he rolled a 25. So he got an extreme, or he got a hard success. He got less than 50% of his uh, skill of 60. So when you compare the two, in this particular example, the NPC is the aggressor, the uh, uh, the you know the cultist is the aggressor, the investigator is the defender. The defender had a higher fighting skill. So even though it's not the uh, investigator's action to fight, uh, and I should have also I should have prefaced this: the cultist had a higher dex. Cultists had higher decks than the investigators, so that's why he went first. Uh, but even though this is not the investigator's uh, actual combat, you know, round, you know, his his turn in the decks order, he had a higher brawling skill. So he not only, you know, kind of parried the uh, the punch that was being thrown at him, but he was able to counter and he was able to deliver a successful punch back at his attacker. So that's why I think that may be the piece that might be confusing. Some of, our, of the people as they're coming to the 70 is this uh, simultaneous combat that's happening. Yeah. So uh, yeah, our investigator would roll damage. He gets to apply damage right now, even though it's not his turn. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that came up in sixth ed that uh, I saw, you know, a fair amount in combat is that, if you've got, say, the same scenario of just a fist fight, and you could have two people swinging at each other and never contacting. Right. And it it just doesn't make any sense, and uh, it took a little bit of imagination to work around it. You certainly could, but it wasn't something that the rules really helped to uh, to deal with. And so what this does is it actually makes combat much more dynamic that instead of just trying to dodge an attack on you, you know, it's, okay, cultist swings, investigator dodges, all right, success on the dodge, so there was no contact, and then investigator swings and cultist dodges and back and forth. And that's not terribly cinematic or dramatic or anything else. So with this, somebody can be defending themselves and get a shot yeah. in. And uh, I just, I really love that idea. 
they've got the choice of either fight or flight. You can either, you know, attack back, you know, with a, a parry. So you're like putting up your arm to block the the inbound attack, and then you throw your own attack. And depending on the success levels, you know, that might contact. And then there's the dodge option, which can just be, you know, using your, your own natural, you know, dexterity to just sort of stay out of the way of these shots and not be contacted. And the main differences here between dodge and fight back is who gets favored in the result yes. of a tie is yep. one of the things. So in the case of if somebody's fighting back, in the case of a draw on the dice, then the attacker wins. But if somebody's trying to dodge, in the case of a tie, the defender wins. Yep. But the advantage goes to fighting back in that if the defender gets a higher level of success, they block the blow and deliver their own. Whereas with the dodge, they simply avoid the damage without delivering delivering their own blow. So, which does not, yeah, it does not negate the possibility of what happens nowadays, which is swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss, because everyone's choosing dodge. You know, I think it's definitely more advantageous, and it's more cinematic and realistic to choose the oh, fight yeah. back. Because very not too many people when they're somebody trying to attack them that they they'll simply you know just keep dodging out of the way without attempting to get their own shots in maybe not every combat round but it definitely makes sense to at least give it a try but that's that's the basics of combat in general and uh then you've got some uh infer information here on if you roll really really well you know, if you do a critical or an extreme, then you have the potential there to do, you know, a, a good amount of additional damage to the opponent. But this only counts if it, you're the one making the attack on the character's turn. So if you're defending against, if you're the investigator defending against the cultist and you use the fight back and you deliver a shot, you don't have the ability to get extra damage on, say, an extreme or a critical. So that's something to keep in mind. Definitely. If uh, you're the one doing the attack on your round, then say you're using you know, a weapon that's non-impaling. So it's blunt, it's a club, it's hand-to-hand then basically uh, simulates that you've hit a weak spot and uh, you just don't even have to roll. Maximum damage plus uh, maximum damage bonus. So that's a good, solid hit that very well might knock somebody out, potentially. And if they do a uh, use a blade or bullet or something like that with an extreme success, then... It's an impale, and that the weapon has uh, potentially struck a vital area, and uh, then apply the increased damage as for an extreme success, and add a damage roll for the weapon. So basically, what you're doing is you're, instead of the days where we would just roll twice for Uh an impale, you could still potentially get, like... 
you know, roll yeah. two ones, which doesn't make much sense for an impale. This gives you maximum damage plus one roll. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I do too. This is definitely, the, this is the way I've been doing it for a long time. And so this has been a house rule for me personally, and it's fantastic to see it applied in here in the official rulebook, because I just think it's a much more sensible way of simulating that kind of uh, damage. The basics of that we just went over, that's how combat works, whether you're unarmed, have a hand-to-hand -hand weapon, or even with firearms, it pretty much works the same way, except for you don't have the fight-back option. Right. Because, you know, somebody's throwing bullets at you. You can't really shoot back in a fight-back <laughs> sense. You're simply trying to not be in the path of the bullet. One thing to be very uh, cognizant of whenever you're in a combat situation in, in the game is that there's no pushing rolls in combat. Remember, a pushed roll is another attempt at it. Yep. It's not a re-roll. And so trying to hit somebody again when, when you missed is just throwing Correct. another punch. So it's just another attack, there, so there's no pushing. There is still the potential there that if it's in your game, you can spend luck to make the, the, the contact. So that stuff does still count, but no pushing on there. And uh, something to keep in mind when you're running one of these games is that monsters and non-player characters, their default is to use the fight back option rather than dodge. Unless your NPC has a, uh, a, sp a specific goal to escape and survive, then they'll use dodge. But other than that, yeah, they mm -hmm. want to stay and fight. It makes it more cinematic, and it hopefully will speed up and make the uh, combat sections uh, more efficient and faster. Yeah, because somebody's yeah. going to go down quicker. So, yeah, so uh, that's one of the things that you want to try and avoid is having combat sort of stretch out and be, you know, tedious. It's supposed to be an exciting thing going on. So having the antagonist or creature always using the fight back option, well, that way if they get their shot in, well, then that that's going to end the yeah. fight sooner. <laughs> and the the use of weapons is pretty much, you know, hand-to-hand -hand weapons is pretty well the same as it is with using just unarmed. You're using the skill of the weapon as opposed to just the brawl skill, unless you're using something just kind of improvised. You know, if you're doing something that's, uh, well, like they show in the book here, if you're using a frying yeah. pan or pool cue or something, then you use brawl, because that's kind of just an innate fighting ability. But if you're trained in something like a sword, then that has its own yep. skill. It does say if you're going to be throwing a knife... It, that is used under the throw skill, not the fighting skill. Yeah. So yeah, and the skills is something else that they tweaked in this, in that, you know, it used to be where every potential weapon had its own skill. Uh, club small, club large, knife small, knife large, different types of swords, you know, and then even it was broken out with the hand-to-hand -hand stuff where there was kick and yeah. punch and headbutt and grapple were all s separate skills. What they did is they condensed it 
and simplified it. And even though I personally still kind of miss having the punch and kick as separate things, because it gave more flavor to the character, I can see why they would want to make that a uh, a, a simpler yeah. option. I haven't checked. Is kick no longer a D6 in damage? Yeah, no, okay. it's just brawl. So, yeah, they removed kick entirely, and it doesn't have a separate damage thing. So it's all 1d3 for a hand-to-hand attack. That could be a kicking, headbutting, anything. Yeah, that was also an advantage of that if you gave somebody just a higher kick. Well, it just inflicted more damage. Yeah. But that's not the way it works anymore. That's been trimmed down. So if, basically think of it as if it's a weapon that you have to practice with to be effective, then it probably yeah. should have its own skill. Because you can use a sword like a club, but you're not going to get the effectiveness out of it that you would otherwise. I also wanted to uh, real quick cover that there is a table of improvised weapon options in the book. So that's something to take a look at and make good use of the environment in a fight you know grab you know ha- ask if you're a player ask the keeper what's around in the environment grab a chair use a fireplace poker bottles glassware whatever and uh make use of it and have fun make it cinematic make it fun and interesting yeah even mentions here in the book if you're doing modern Computer monitors, power cables, and scissors could yeah. be deadly in an office. A computer monitor, you know, that would definitely, well, let's just say the older CRT yes. computer monitors, because those would be, you know, a good 15 pounds to pick up and throw at somebody. If you grab a little flat screen monitor, it's not going to do a whole lot. But the older glass CRTs would actually be, you know, pretty effective. Or even just grabbing a uh, a mouse and yanking out its cable and swing it by the cable. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, just be, you know, imaginative with it. Yeah, an improvised weapon may not last long. That mouse that you just swung by the cable, you're probably going to get yeah, one yeah, good hit in just... with that. Unless you can get a... Yeah, because that mouse is probably going to explode on impact, yeah. but you know it should get a little bit of, of a hit in there, unless you wrap it around yeah. or something. But that would be a fighting maneuver to entangle somebody in a cord. So it's totally an option doing in a game, but we're going to cover fighting maneuvers a little later whenever we can be... We have more people and we can be sure of exactly how it works, because we're learning this stuff yeah. along with everybody exactly. else. So... We all get to go on this journey together. Hooray! Yeah. We're going to go ahead and leave it at that, since it's only the two of us, and that we're wanting to kind of break these up into smaller chunks. So, we are going to do this. We want to hear from our listeners, and we have a lot of different ways you can reach out to us. Our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com. We also have a Twitter account at mu underscore podcast, and you can join our IRC channel on the feedback page of the website. We've got our Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number at 401-400-0-MUP. 
That's 401-400-0687. Or you can just use the SpeakPike link located on the side of the website. Whenever you ring us up, ask a question, or just leave us a liner saying who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University Podcast with a hearty Go Pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods. Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you could find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com forward slash 75. That's the number 75. Our forums are at mu-podcast.com slash campus. Come join the community, be part of the conversations. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. And then we've got the Kickstarter for the Journal of Lovecraftian Science. <sighs> oh, let me start over on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is an exciting campaign. You're on. Yeah, I think there's a Shoggoth breeding in my nose.